Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. Joining me today for the fourth interview we've had with him. I'm very excited to have him back on again. Denny, well, before I even say his name, I'm going to bring him into the show because I want to address an earlier point that I haven't gotten into in the past because I was watching his interview from earlier and realized, wait a minute, am I mispronouncing your name this entire time and you've never told me that? <laughs> Denny Renku, I believe. Thank you for joining oh, me uh, once again. <laughs> yeah. Trying to pronounce it right is sometimes worse than just pronouncing how you think. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that's probably yeah, why but, I just wanted but, to. Be... But, yeah, it's Denis Rancourt. And, uh, but I, you know, people say Rancourt, that's fine because that, that would be the way you would pronounce it in English. Okay, I'm just kind of being facetious. I thought it was funny because I was like, you know, going back numerous times, but I always uh -huh. want to be accurate. So thank you for joining me today. And I'm, I'm really excited to have you back on because the last few discussions we've had have been in the same vein of discussion. Uh, the one with Stephanie Snaff, where we co-hosted that and discussed it, that was, you know, kind of broadening it out. She brought in the glyphosate discussion and how there's a lot of factors at play here. And, and that, that's one of the big parts to think about in general is it could be more than we even realize. But your work has really brought a fine point to it. And the last one we discussed around the all-cause all mortality, a couple points in other research discussions around lockdowns and how it, the data is showing that this is an illusion. Now, just to be clear, when we get into this, that does not necessarily have to mean that there's not something there. The word illusion means that this is a misrepresentation of the perception around what's happening is incorrect. So I'd like to get into that with you again today and see how this has evolved since last time we talked. And to start off again, uh, and I just I'll shout out this great podcast you had on on germ warfare in regard to that exact topic. Um, but starting off with the discussion that we have had. Oh, and I also want to shout out your great uh website here that i didn't know was there it's kind of like a one catch-all for a lot of your great research i'll include that for people to check out but starting again with the research study entitled nature of the covid era public health disaster from the usa from all cause mortality and socio geoeconomic and climate data now i have a few things highlighted we went over this in the last show but i want to start with this in general and maybe kind of re-encapsulate for those that haven't seen the re earlier interviews or that study what was the core finding of that and what that's showing people Oh, my. Um, and, you know, I have to say the research is ongoing and continuing. So it's hard for me to exactly remember where we were at when that article was published versus the next article that was also published and so on. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically what we said in that first big article, we showed that the mortality, the all-cause mortality was incompatible with an idea of a viral respiratory diseases that was spreading in the, in the manner that is believed. And it was just incompatible with that. There, there was one of the main findings that I made very early on was that as soon as the pandemic was announced by the World Health Organization, there was a, an immediate surge in deaths in, in hotspots around the world. And it was synchronous. It, it, you know, it was at exactly the same time in Paris, London, New York, a few, a few places like that. And that that sharp rise in all-cause deaths, which, which quickly came down again within a, a month or, or more, um, did not occur at all in many, many jurisdictions. Hmm. Uh, so it was very disparate. And what we found was that it was related to what was being done in those jurisdictions. It was not, you know, there, there's, there's no way that all of a sudden this virulent uh, uh, pathogen immediately decided to act at the same time around the world mm. in these hot spot places where they happen to be really mistreating uh, patients in in large institutions like in New York and and so on. Right. So 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 we we argue that th there's no way that this was due to the usual picture, and we also have argued extensively in 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 the research that you're reporting, especially that that 
that article that you you showed um, that Canada did not have a mortality pandemic. There were no virtually no deaths compared to the United States and Canada. Meanwhile, you have thousands of kilometers of land border, two of the biggest uh, economic exchange partners in the world, and 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 trucks and and and, and transportation crossing necessarily all the time. And virtually nothing happened. I mean, in proportion to the population, there were very little all-cause excess deaths in Canada. I, I can get into the numbers, but uh, whereas in the United States, our latest quantification is 1.27 million excess all-cause deaths in the United States during the COVID period. Now, so that includes up until today or just during? Uh, up until uh, a month or so ago. Okay, yes. so I, w- I want to dive into that in a minute because that's interesting because I, w- I think you would agree there's different things causing. Well, I mean, just let me just ask you that. So let's start off with the point about what you feel is caused or did cause the earlier spikes, right? So I, we talked about the potential for testing manipulation where there's different styles of testing or different ways they're going about the regiment and, and that caused that to be seen more. Give, give me your thoughts. No, on no, 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 no. The testing has no, no consequence here because I'm dealing with all cause mortality. So we're just counting deaths. Okay. I'm going to the hardest data. I don't care what you say the cause of death is. I'm going to count deaths on a by day or by week basis and just see what the I graph looks you. like as a function of time. So okay. the, 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 the whole testing, uh, uh, you know, controversies, they don't intervene at all. And that's the beauty of the work that we're doing is that we're completely independent of that nonsense. And we're, we're, we're just saying we believe that states, that countries, that modern countries are able to count, you know, how many people die and where they die and how old they were and so on. And therefore, we can look at all-cause mortality as a function of time. We're not even talking about whether it's excess mortality or not. We can look mm-hmm. at the total number of deaths in a week per week as the weeks advance in any given jurisdiction that is counting deaths. And we can look at it by age group because they tell us the age of the individual that died as well. And so we don't care about cause of death. In fact, cause of death is a very difficult thing to to know in in the case of diseases like this. There's always going to be controversy and there's no way you can determine it uh, with any kind of scientific certainty. So we just avoid the whole problem. And when we do that, we know we've got hard data and we look for coincidences. We look for uh, jurisdictional differences. We look for all these things and we try to make sense of it. And what we what the first thing that comes up is um, that, uh, well, in the U, the U.S. is rather unique because in proportion to its population, it has m- massive all cause deaths excess during the covid period. Uh, whereas many other, most Western European countries uh, and Canada do not. Okay, so there's a big difference there. Now, we asked ourselves, why is that? What's so special about the United States? And we found the answers. Uh, we find that uh, there is a strong correlation between the excess. You see, in the United States, you can look at 50 states. It's, almost, it's like looking at 50 different countries, different jurisdictions uh, and, and that are doing different things and so on. And so you can look for correlations between the excess mortality in a given state and various socioeconomic and health parameters of the populations in those states. And so that gives you 50 points on a, on a plot, and you can look for correlations. And in the latest article on U.S. Uh, mortality, we found the strongest correlation that we'd ever seen that is unheard of in social sciences to have such a strong correlation, uh, which is that 
the excess mortality by state correlates strongly with poverty in that state. The number of people, the fraction of the population that's living in poverty. So the correlate, the the the, the Pearson correlation coefficient is plus zero point eight six, which is very large. Uh, it, it's called a, a a very strong correlation. It's un, you know you don't normally see that. And the beauty of this result is that it's not just a correlation, but it shows proportionality, meaning that the the, the, the least squares best straight line goes through the origin of the plot, meaning that it's proportional to. So if in a state, if you had no one living in poverty, you would have had no excess deaths. And when you double the, the number of people living in poverty, you double the number of excess deaths in the given state. So that is, that is a, a phenomenal result, which shows that it, it, it is uh, very likely not due to a virus because viruses do not have uh, the ability to discern someone who is poor versus someone who is wealthy uh, on, on its own. You know, there, there, there may be uh, co-health conditions that are uh, correlated to whether you're poor or not, but that's something else. But just to have such a strong correlation with poverty is remarkable. And the other thing is that there is no such correlation, contrary to what you might believe, if you believe the the uh, viral uh, theory of the excess deaths during COVID, you might you would have to believe that there should be a correlation with the age of the population. So if you have a state that has more people that are 85 and over or 75 and over, you should you should in proportion to that fraction of the population see a correlation. Well, we get shotgun patterns. There are no correlations of excess mortality in the United States with the age of the population in the given state. None. So this is completely incompatible with, with what is said to be COVID-19 because the there are several quality clinical studies where they actually follow uh, sick patients and, and determine to the best of their ability using analytic methods what, what their ailments are. And these studies find that the... Uh, case fatality ratio, if you like, or the, 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 the probability that you'll die as a function of age is exponential with age. So you, the, 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 the older they are, much, the much more likely you are to die from uh, what they would attribute to COVID. Okay. So that is, that is, if you don't accept that, then you're not accepting any science in relation to COVID. All right. So, right. so, so we're, we're seeing that the excess deaths are completely shotgun pattern uncorrelated to age of the population and that young adults uh, and young people are dying dramatically more than they did before the COVID period uh, in, in a way that is incompatible with this, what you'd expect this distribution of probability of death from COVID to be. So, and we show many, many graphs of that in our various articles, uh, you know, when we show the results by age group. So there we conclude that, um, People were not dying of this respiratory disease uh, that that has been defined, uh, and uh, it's just incompatible with that in terms of how it would spread. The, the, you know, a virus does not know not to cross a border between states or between countries. That is impossible. There is no genetic code that will tell a virus about borders. So, the, you know, there's just so many absurdities that you have to believe once once you examine the all-cause mortality data 
you have to accept absurdities if you want to continue to believe that there was a special, particularly virulent uh, virus that came onto the planet and was causing excess death. Uh, so, so our conclusion is um, there we see no evidence in in all cause mortality to that would allow us to say that a particularly virulent pathogen, whatever it might be, all of a sudden came onto the planet and started killing people. There is no evidence of that that is consistent with that in the all-cause mortality data in all the countries that we've looked at that have quality data. And that includes uh, many, uh, most uh, Western uh, European countries, many Eastern European countries, uh, the United States, all its states, and Canada and all each of its provinces. Uh, We've been looking at this in detail for a long time. Uh, there is th- this, this phenomenon is incompatible with their story. The, the, right. the true data is completely at odds with the narrative that they have been telling us since the pandemic was announced. So that's, that's a hard conclusion in my view. And I keep telling all the scientists I'm in contact with and anyone who will listen to me, I keep telling them, there is no reason to believe that a particularly virulent pathogen came onto the planet. Hello, please mm-hmm. understand. This is hard data. You cannot get around this. You have to. You have to use that as a starting point. It's a stepping stone. If you don't accept that, you're talking about things that are hypothetical that have no impact on people's lives. Uh, uh, you know, like if you want to talk about theoretical immunology and go on and on about the mechanisms of immunology and and so on, then you're um, filling space that has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with the hard reality that the the mortality, which is the the single greatest sign of what's happening in the population that is significant, that can cause mortality, that the mortality shows no evidence for a virulent pathogen coming on and doing this. Okay. And you've got these strong correlations to poverty to, and get this disability, mm. the, the number of people living in disability in the United States, for example, very strongly correlated to that. You know, people don't realize the e- extremely fragile pools of individuals that exist in the United States to explain this high mortality. For example, people don't know that um, there are 14 million people in the United States that are considered to have to suffer from a serious mental illness. Hmm. Most of those people are heavily medicated, and those medications are very strong and affect you in many, many ways. It causes obesity and all kinds of things like that. So, so we, we don't, we don't, we, we we tend to think in terms of in theoretical terms, in terms of a pathogen coming into our community of friends in our middle-class worlds. But in actual fact, uh, the population is very heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. And that heterogeneity uh, is such that there are people on the edge all the time, a large fractions of population on the edge of dying from from various effects. Um, So if if you have people who are institutionalized, who are being taken care of because they're disabled, uh, who uh, have a mental illness, who are elderly in addition to that, and all of a sudden you decide that it would be a good idea to protect them, in quotations, to completely isolate them, 
to not allow them to use the same washrooms as someone else, to to n- basically not allow their con- their usual contacts or their families to see them, and so on and so on, you're going to outright kill them, uh, because that 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 dramatic change in their lives. Uh, isolation is considered a form of torture, even for healthy people. So imagine taking these extremely fragile people and subjecting them to this kind of thing. Uh, so that's what we have to keep in mind is the heterogeneity of health in, in especially the U.S. population and the large numbers of people that this involves and the fact that you are using these incredibly aggressive uh, measures, uh, such as taking people out of intensive care in hospitals to put them in care homes to make room in the hospital for others that are want to kind of come in, and then locking them into these uh, care homes. And then when they have a positive COVID test, isolating them severely within that care home, mm-hmm. within the building, and blocking all contact with the outside world. You know, these are the kinds of measures that, that were applied. They're, 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 you know, lockdowns and, and uh, isolation, distancing, everybody wearing masks. Even the few people that, that some of these highly dependent and fragile people would see would be wearing gloves and masks and shields. You know, you can imagine the impact that that would have on, on these people. So, well, so you know, that, that's, that's what we conclude. Given the correlations that we find, very strong correlation with obesity also, very strong correlation with obesity, or strong anyway, with obesity. Um, and uh, that, that, that is what we find. Uh, poverty, obesity, disability, that's what you're looking at. And those are the people who died. Now, what's interesting is in the second paper, which you didn't show the header for, I don't think, uh, but the, the, the latest large paper on all-cause mortality in the United States that we have, in that one, we found in addition that the vaccine, we found evidence of uh, time synchronicity between an increase in vaccine doses that are delivered to the body, that are, that are administered to people, and an increase in mortality. Right. Well, can I, if I can jump in real quick, Danny, I don't, I don't want to get too far away from the first part. Uh, and okay. I, I do want to get into that. Trust me. Yeah, yeah, but sure. There's so much to unpack in there. And I mean, so really, I want your opinion on the evolution of this from the beginning. Right. Because we could talk about the, you know, the mistreatment. Let's take in New York as an example that, w- that exacerbated the problem and was pointed at. But what in your mind is the justification, if any, to start this? Right. So if your argument is and the data backs up that this was a combination of other things that was then kind of misinterpreted to be the problem. What caused it to start? What was the, the misinterpretation in the beginning and what was causing that for them to argue there was a problem, in your opinion? Okay, well, you, you can think of this in terms of there are conditions where a forest fire is really likely and any spark will do, mm-hmm. okay, to, to get it going. So you've got a lot of, you, you're in the middle of a drought, you've got dry, very dry underbrush and so on, lots of fuel, and uh, there, the wind. there's wind. If you, so if you get a spark under those conditions, there's going to be a large forest fire. It can be lightning, it can be an accidental, uh, you know, camper, uh, fire, whatever. You, you can think of it in those terms. So, in other words, the, the terrain that sets this thing is, is that you have this huge globalized pandemic response effort or institutions or network, okay? Th- these people exist to respond to pandemics, 
they are a huge hammer looking for a nail. All right? right. That's always there. They have set it up. They fund it. It's there. That's it's ready to go. Okay. They practice scenarios. They do all this stuff. Okay. So you've got that, which is funded by pharma and special interests, of course, but it's there. So that means that you've got an army of professionals, including scientists that are just ready to go. Now, in addition to that, and, and you could, you could by compartment add all the pieces that are this, this dry underbrush that I'm talking about. Another piece is that uh, in, in, in medical science, you, they have, unfortunately, most medical researchers have had their minds turned towards this, this uh, uh, idea that death and disease is caused by a single, is monocausal, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a pathogen that's responsible. And therefore, if you can find something that will attack that pathogen, you'll be curing people. And th- this is a very tunnel vision view of health. It, it completely ignores all the uh, very well-established social animal studies that show that the the very first determinant of health is uh, a dominance hierarchy stress that the individual is subjected to, okay? That that, that is by far the dominant uh, uh, factor regarding individual health. And so it just ignores all of of that, ignores reality basically, and just has all these MDs and researchers tunnel vision looking for pathogens and wanting to wanting to figure out how to kill these pathogens. So so you've got that. Now, you, in addition to that, because you've got that, you have uh, professional scientists who are going to be given who are going to be given recognition and even Nobel prizes if they discover a new pathogen. That is causing a new disease. So they're always on the lookout. It's like it's like a chemist uh, discovering a new molecule that has really nice properties, right? It's like uh, a, a physicist discovering a, a a principle that will allow uh, explaining many experiments and so on. So the, these medical researchers are are looking to define a mineralogist, for example, will want to discover a new mineral and it'll be named after him or someone, one of his friends or something, right? So these, these guys are looking for viruses. They are looking for viruses all the time. And they, they therefore have an internal professional bias to find viruses, okay? Now, the problem is viruses are very small. They're invisible. They're difficult to separate from the bodily fluids and everything else that, that, that is in the infected organ whether it's the lungs or something else. So this is scientifically a very difficult thing to do to to identify a new virus when you've got a whole ecology of viruses and bacteria in in all your organs, you know, your your intestinal Mm -hmm. tract, your your lungs, everything. So, so, uh, you know, literally billions of organisms in your body like that. Um, So uh, they're looking for these things and... In addition to that, um, they tend to be over-reliant on technology. So there are methods that have been developed to sequence, uh, to, sequen- to get genetic sequencing uh, mm-hmm. sequences, and they rely on them excessively. So whereas uh, traditionally you would separate out the viral particles and you'd be looking at them under the microscope and you'd want to find them and look at them and recognize them. And then you'd want to separate them out in large enough quantity to be able to do analyses on them. Well, instead, they just, they basically uh, just swish all that fluid through their PCR machine 
and then uh, they get partial kind of answers, and then they use a computer to, uh, to in all likelihood, uh, recreate what the genetic code must be, according to them. And then they rely on that. And once, once, it's, once it's accepted that this is the genetic code of some new virus, then there you go. You're, you're, off, you're off believing that, and you're off, uh, you run with it, basically. And the person who, who submitted the genetic code to the international bodies gets recognized for having discovered the virus or the institution that has done that and so on. So there are all these, there are all these forces, what I call uh, institutional structural bias, Mm-hmm. that are that are present and that are just, just they're just ready to be triggered you know and in addition to that you've got a lot of it's internationalized you you, you know M- md researchers in china will have been educated or trained in the U- in the us and there are exchanges like that there are exchanges between labs there's funding between labs there's all kinds so it's a very it's a tight knit professional network and um so what, really, do you, what do you feel was the spark, though? What do you feel was the spark that eventually they was used? Or I, I completely agree with everything you're saying, and I think right. that that's been established throughout this well, more than anything know, I've ever seen. But I, I, I did not study the historic events, the chain of historic events that led us precisely to the the World Health Organization on March 11, 2020, announcing that there was a pandemic. I didn't mm-hmm. study all those events, but I, I heard about them like you did and many others did through, through media and, 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 and published reports and so on. So um, I, I, knew, I know some elements of it. Um, I know that um, the, the, uh, some Chinese uh, researchers uh, described that there was a particularly bad pneumonia-type disease that was being... Uh, seen in 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 one or more hospitals. I know that some people collected the fluids from the lungs of some of those patients and derived by these indirect methods a genetic code, which they sent off to an international body, mm-hmm. and that that was kind of accepted. That therefore there was this new pathogen around. I see, and, and so that built on what we just discussed, and essentially they just it just the fire spread, and people went with what they well, yeah. They and there, there's for. a few other elements to the story. Um, and then what happened was once you've got this new pathogen that people are talking about, um, the modelers got involved and the uh-huh. UK modelers, uh, there was a big paper that came out in one of the top medical journals that said, look, this thing started in China. China has a responsibility to lock down, to stop all flights, to do everything it can. Otherwise, it'll be killing people around the world. This is China's problem. Uh, I didn't say it in those terms, but basically they did uh, these these completely stupid uh, epidemiological modeling of, mm-hmm. you know, how many people are taking airplanes, how many flights are there, uh, what's the likelihood that they're transferring this thing and so on. And they came up with, you know, just egregiously wrong estimates of how many people could be killed. And that it, and their conclusion was that therefore China had a moral uh, you know, a national responsibility to, to, to lock everything down. And I think that, that that came out very early, that scientific article in, 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 a, in, a, in a leading journal. And so I think that had that and the talk around it and the propaganda around it would have pressured uh, China to just lock everything down and demonstrate in a propaganda move that they could build hospitals overnight and that mm-hmm. they, they were taking this seriously and they were doing everything they could and blah, blah, blah. 
And um, then, then once it had gone far enough and they had made their point, um, there was an interview that I saw by a former KGB intelligence uh, general uh, that you may have seen and that I've talked about on Twitter and various mm -hmm. articles. But uh, he said that the Chinese then eventually decided that they needed to shut down, that, that they needed themselves to stop being the origin of this crazy propaganda. So they told the MDs and researchers to just cool their jets and decided not to lock down their entire economy. And as a result, China flourished in the COVID period and kept its economy going. And uh, they, they stopped talking about and testing for COVID. Um, and um, so there were all these elements at play, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, what, so what, my, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm taking from that is essentially that the lockdown was the, the propaganda or the, rather just the, the discussion of the lockdown began there, which then essentially spread. And that was one of the leading just reasons for what we're seeing in the all cause mortality. I think, I mean, I think that there's, I, I think it's, oh, no, I, I, I would, I would not say it that way. Um, I, I do not at all agree with the idea that Western lockdowns were inspired by or were a consequence of the fact that the Chinese had locked down. Oh, I was taking it one step further back, actually. The recommendation coming from the WHO and other outside parties that then yeah. happened, and that's the same. So I would argue there's more of a there's more intention behind that discussion about what that other than them saying what they believe was going to be the right move i personally see more more uh engineering to this whole thing but that's just my perspective on it but i definitely see how that could then spread and my, i'm trying to paint the picture of people out there listening to see that this is whether or not intent you remove intent from this and i my audience knows i have a huge the way I i'm, I'm not i'm not removing intent no, no I, that's what i'm saying I'm, to make it more digestible that you can oh. see how that can actually happen in a way which would justify and explain the all-cause mortality in a way no, that's being good no no i you know i would again i would i would say things differently mm -hmm. um even though there is all this dry underbrush that i talked about all these institutional structures all these things are just ready to be triggered even though they are they are in place the the pandemic measures that we saw being applied throughout the world and so over such a long period and so aggressively could not have occurred without uh, um, oversight and encouragement by geopolitical forces. Let's put it that way. Okay. There, there is no way that this just happened spontaneously. They went way, way overboard. Uh, it was extreme and, and it, it is clear that they wanted uh, complete uh, increase in ability to know everybody's whereabouts, to, to surveil all the world's populations as much as they could. They wanted that ability to be implemented. They wanted said, the ability to shut down your, your bank accounts. Uh, they want, to, they want uh, an e-currency in that is tied to everyone's individual bank accounts. Uh, it, it's clear that geopolitically, there are some really obvious goals that they're after and that they the uh covid was a, a, a way to achieve those goals so are you and saying that, you believe that there's some part of this where that was an intentional misrepresentation to achieve those things well you don't you don't have to be it, it's going to be represented one once the notion of a pandemic and a, a virulent pathogen is accepted and all the professional researchers and mds have bought into it you don't have to design anything. It's going to that's that's going to be the story. The you question do. is, 
how far are the measures going to go? How long are they going to last? How will the governments use this? How will they right, manipulate right. it and use it? That's the question. Um, you know, but the, the, on its own, there is no way that the medical researcher is going to say, you know what, maybe there wasn't a pathogen this time around. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that's never going to happen. I'm going to be the only lone guy saying that for a long time. You know, it's, it's funny. It brings to mind a paper I've referenced quite a bit. I don't have it pulled up at the moment, but an old WHO post. Uh, that is now no longer there, but I have it archived. That's called "Health is More Than Influenza," and and it's two people of the WHO literally calling out how pandemics of fear, swine flu being one of them, H one. Uh, they, they list a bunch of them off, but how ex- disease experts like Fauci, for example, are are people that will lean into things exactly like you're saying, simply because it's in their best interest, even if they do see something or not. You know, I find that really interesting. Before we get too far away from it, and since you brought it up, I, I have to ask this because I'm really I, I'm interested to discuss the idea of whether or not you feel this thing based on your earlier comments has actually been isolated or rather proven to be isolated because you suggest the idea of the swirling liquid. And there's a lot of people out there that have argued it hasn't actually technically been isolated. So is that something that you have an opinion on? Yeah, Well, you know, I I did not make it one of my uh, serious points of research to look into that, Mm -hmm. but I do plan to go there eventually. I do. I mean, I have a a lot of research projects and on, on, you know, on my pile of things to do. Um, But I did look at it uh, enough to realize that, um, the virus has not been isolated in the classic scientific sense of That's a small of a nanoparticle having been isolated. There's no there's no way that a that a purified uh, sample of macroscopic size has been produced and therefore analyzed in a you know by methods that allow accuracy. I I you know. Even even the high resolution electron microscope pictures that I see are just not very convincing at all to me. And I I have done uh, I used to have an electron microscope in my lab when I was a researcher, and I've done a lot of electron microscopy. And I taught it at the graduate level. I taught all the measurement methods at the graduate level. Uh, you know, spectroscopy, diffraction, micro- various kinds of microscopy. These are things I know, and I know how difficult it is to do these measurements, and I know how uh, difficult it is even to find the object that you would like to illustrate in a, in an electron micrograph. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because anytime you look at a sample, there's always impurities. There's always all kinds of stuff going on. There's always way more uh, variety and zoology of objects, if you like, than, than you would like. Which by definition means it's not purified, correct? Oh yeah, no, no. I have not seen any uh, electron pictures that would correspond to a purified sample. Right. Yeah. Now, I understand the, the evolution of the conversation today where there people argue that it's not as simple as that or that Koch postulates is outdated or all these different conversations. But by the definitions we have today, I agree. I have not seen an example that it's been actually isolated by itself. And I just wonder what that ultimately well, well, here, here's the, Here's the argument, okay? Mm-hmm. Here's the argument as I see it, as I understand it what these researchers might respond to you is the following. They would say, look, maybe it's really hard to to separate. Maybe it's hard to get a large sample. Maybe it's really hard even to reproduce in a cell, to get it to the virus to reproduce in a cell culture. Um, Even that is not convincing. They claim to have done it, but Mm -hmm. who knows what is reproducing. And if it's not pure what you're what you're injecting the cell culture with, then what is it that's being reproduced and so on, right? Right. So there are all these problems. But um, 
a researcher might say, well, okay, I'll admit that there are problems. I admit that we're, we're, you know, we're not able to do everything we can. This is the microscopic world and so on. But we have this wonderful PCR technology. And when we apply it, we get a sequence. And that sequence has to correspond to a virus. And, uh, it, you know, there are many parts of it that we definitely recognize as being parts of the virus. And we can even... Uh, using a computer, make the entire genome of the of the of, uh, or sequence of the virus, and so and so on that basis, we believe that there is a virus out in there, even though we can't physically grab it and look at it and and isolate it as we would like to, and therefore, on the basis of this PCR technology, we believe that it exists. Okay, that would be their argument. Now, that is a fair argument because the way the only way to counter that argument is to examine the molecular mechanism of this technique PCR uh, and, and look at all the artifacts that can, that can arise and how does it work and does it really always work and is, is the result hypersensitive to exactly how you're doing the procedure in the lab and to exactly what your computer algorithms are to correct the fact that you're not don't have enough of a macroscopic sample that you can really do the sequencing step by step and 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 really uh, kind of a, in an ab initio way in the lab get the sequence. Are these algorithms, these computer algorithms, how reliable are they? What is the uncertainty in that? In other words, if you want to critique their proposal that you have to believe them because they have this magical PCR technique, then, then, then if you want to critique that, you have to get into the nuts and bolts of exactly what are they doing. And I have looked for articles that get into the nuts and bolts of the, of the PCR and so on. And they're, it's very technical and they're, they're hard to find. You don't have definitive researchers. You see, researchers don't get rewarded for critiquing techniques for which you've been uh, a Nobel Prize was given for discovering the technique, you know, and that's the other thing that people don't realize is that the Nobel prizes are part of the science propaganda enterprise. You know, you you, the, I'm not saying that every Nobel Prize is fits in this category. You need some that are authentic and real and major discoveries. You know, I'm thinking about uh, Einstein's discoveries and so on, but. You, you also have the very, the Nobel Prize is necessarily political because to submit someone for the prize, you need resources, you need to, you need to get in there and have influence and so on. So there's, it, it, it certainly, it, there is certainly a correlation between Nobel Prize being given and uh, geopolitical agendas being advanced as a result, okay? So I'm looking at the ozone hole, molecular mechanism for, for, for the ozone hole. I'm looking at, you know, things like that. And there's definitely a relationship. So I look at the, the, there was a Nobel Prize given for discovering supposedly the pathogen that causes AIDS. Okay. Another one of these crazy things. So, so there are agendas, even in something like the Nobel Prize, which you know, for most people is thought to be this pure scientific acknowledgement, right? So you got to be really careful. Yeah. Oh, I can't hear you. You're muted. 
Thank you for that. I, I'm I'm glad you bring that up. I really I, I think that's important. I actually recently just saw you share a great article from Off Guardian that the PCR is scientifically meaningless, and I I believe they mean that in the context of COVID nineteen, right? And I I think it's I think it's clear that even Carrie Mullis and people that have won awards for that exact thing have spoke about well, the way that it's being misused in this context. That it's yes the, or no, essentially. You want yeah, to elaborate the problem on that? is PCR is like a huge family of techniques and methods mm-hmm. and methodologies. Okay. It's like, it's a huge thing. You, if you say the word PCR, it can mean so many different things because you, you have to ask, well, to what level do you want to characterize this sample? You know, mm-hmm. to what degree and what methods are you going to use and how are you going to complete it? And all. So, so it's not, you, it's not a, it's not a binary thing where you say PCR is worthless or PCR is, is wonderful. Right, it, right. It, it, in, in, in some applications, it's amazing. And, you know, if you get a large macroscopic sample of someone's blood or uh, and, and, you know, in, in forensic science and so on, uh, it, it, even there, it, it has had problems, but it can also achieve a lot. It's like, you know, it depends on how far you want to go. For example, um, just to simplify it, you know, blood type, if, if, if the criminal has a certain blood type and the blood you found on the scene is a different blood type, it's, it's open and shut. You know, that is not that person's blood period right Mm, (laughs) and and so depending on how how much detail you need how much discernment you want to make in the in in the measurement then it gets more and more complicated uh and the same is true of pcr there's a whole spectrum of ways you can use pcr and of resolution that you can attempt to achieve with pcr I argue that's exactly why, and again, this is my opinion, of why the, this test was chosen in this regard, because I believe it can be manipulated. And I think that's a, a, an example that was shown in a previous whooping cough example, even the New York Times wrote about in 2007, where their finding was this entire whooping cough discussion was a manu- as an accidental manufacturer using the PCR test that created false positives. And, and they even say in that article, this is going to happen again if we're not careful. So I, I believe that it, it exactly has a purpose, and he, he won awards for it. It has purpose but that's why he spoke up and said before he died that this is being mis you know not used in the appropriate way yeah he he, he uh carrie mullis uh the inventor of pcr was speaking in the context of aids, AIDS. yes hiv and aids and, exactly. uh you know that 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 i think is now it's really established that 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 was not wouldn't a, you argue it's the same dynamic that's being used in regard course, to absolutely, yeah absolutely i i would um But, um, you know, if you didn't have, let me put it another way. Let's put the thing another way. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have PCR, if you could not supposedly have genetic sequences, uh, obtain and measure genetic sequences, if you didn't have PCR, you wouldn't be able to do any of this. The, the, you wouldn't be able to say that you have a new virus. You wouldn't be able to say that there is a a new virus or anything, you know, because you would never, it's very difficult to do. Uh, and the only times they've done it, or let me say, maybe you would be able to, but it would be so much more work, so many more resources and, uh, uh, and open to critique because the techniques that you would have to use are much more transparent, are much more easy to understand, let's say. Okay. We're talking about like culturing in a lab example. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's the point we brought up early on is that that's exa- and that's what even at the time was supposed to be the definitive proof of the PCR finding what they found. And it just eventually became that that is the example. But this is such a this whole conversation, I think, is just one one pillar of how this is being misrepresented or I would argue, for my opinion, being intentionally 
you know, deceiving, but we, that, that's just one part of it. But before we get past the, uh, the point of the isolation, I wanted to include this just since I've pointed this out many times. And I think that the, the, the real crux of the issue is not even whether or not, I think at the end of the day, it's proven that it doesn't matter in the, how this process went forward because the CDC of China openly spoke up in an interview with MSNBC and said the problem was when this first started, it wasn't isolated. And that's proven that Moderna, Pfizer began the manufacturing of the injections at a time when they claim it hadn't been. And all that was sent, as you discussed, was genetic sequence. Let me play this. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. That's how the. Let me uh, play this real quick and then you can comment on it. One second. Oh, why has the data not been shared? No, the data that isolated the virus. That's the issue. And so that's an interview with MSNBC and he basic or yeah, that's MSNBC. And he's basically just admitting that when that happened, it hadn't been isolated. Now, people can argue that it has since then. My point is that if Moderna was already manufacturing something that was being tested before that, how what does it how, why does it even matter whether it was isolated after the fact in the context of how they're making these injections? It doesn't matter um, if 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 it's accepted that there's a genetic code. And if whatever pharma industry wants to take a part of that code and say that that's what we're going to make in the lab and encapsulate in these lipid uh, nanoparticles, and we're going to inject you with it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and therefore, that, that will be, uh, you know, that, that mRNA that's designed in, in that regard is going to produce this piece of protein, and then your immune system is going to recognize it and react and so on, and you'll, you'll develop immunity. So th- that's, that's the beauty of what they've done is that since all they need is a genetic code, whether it's true or false, and however it was obtained, and whether it really is a unique virus and so on, all they need is that, it's recognized, and 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 so it's on paper they can make you a vaccine with this with this new technology. And not only that, it's cheaper to make. And in a sense, it avoids a lot of the problems, uh, regulatory problems and otherwise, because you don't need uh, any any uh, virus or um, usual uh, thing in order to make the vaccine. Right, so, right. Uh, <laughs> so so the vector is just this this nanoparticle that you synthesize in the lab. And so mm-hmm. it's it's just it's like it's like now they've established the idea that they can just get genetic sequences and make vaccines for anything you want. And so they've what got you- this this wonderful. Um, but 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 you know, I would go further than what you were saying. I would say this whole isolation question is itself, I've always said, completely irrelevant because using hard data, we have demonstrated that there was no particularly virulent pathogen. Right. right. Okay. Which, which is actually my, the crux of my point there is that they that that if you want to lean into the intent side of this, that that would be aware to them. And that's why this needed to be lied about. Essentially, if there wasn't something, the idea of whether it was isolated seems to be in a complete fabric. Well, we, at the time, you could not say what I'm saying now because you needed right. the all cause mortality data to be accumulated. And right. Be but analyzed. looking back now, I mean, there must yeah. be some level of intentional misrepresentation. I don't see how that cannot without that. Well, I, I, I'm sure I'm sure they know that they're going to get away with this in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, if there are no deaths, then we save people. If there are deaths, then they're doing <laughs> something else and so on. I mean, they, they, they this is look, I, I said this on day one. If there was a truly dangerous, virulent pathogen, you wouldn't have to ask yourself all these questions. People would be dropping in the streets. Right. You'd, you, you'd see it immediately. You would know people who died that who are your neighbors 
you know, there'd be deaths. Um, And the fact that you need people to tell you there are deaths, (laughs) you know, uh, and to quantitatively tell you how many and so on, and to try to convince you that they're due to supposedly uh, COVID-19 without really explaining how that is and and not getting into the problems of attributing a cause of death and so on and so on, right? Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't have any of these problems if there was a virulent pathogen out there, okay? Yeah, you know, that, that's something you have to keep in mind. And I said that from the very beginning. Um, one of the things we showed in that first paper on the U.S. data, which is really important, is we talked about, well, what is the mechanism of death then? You've got excess death right. in the United States. And what we found was that um, the death certificates, the majority of death certificates have as a co-condition non-COVID pneumonia. And at the same time, for structural reasons, everyone was cutting down on antibiotics. I mean, they basically said this is a virus, so it's not ethical for you to be prescribing antibiotics. And so antibiotic prescriptions dropped by half at the same time that you had a huge national scale epidemic of bacterial pneumonia. So we we have argued that uh, what mechanistically what killed these particularly fragile individuals that are in poverty, that are obese and so on is and they are more susceptible to getting pneumonia regularly because the states that have a lot of those people uh, have a much greater uh, pre-COVID prescription rate of pneumonia, right? So they're very susceptible to these to these respiratory problems. Um, what killed people mechanistically is they, they got bacterial pneumonia and it was not treated with antibiotics. And this ties into the story of ivermectin. There are some very dedicated MDs who are convinced that they saved lives or helped people with ivermectin. Well, ivermectin is a proven, scientifically published uh, in the scientific literature, very effective agent against bacterial pneumonia. Right. So they may have been treating people for bacterial pneumonia, thinking they were treating them for so-called COVID and becoming convinced of the value of ivermectin, which is true. It would have had a great value because this was all happening at a time when they stopped prescribing antibiotics and where there were a lot of bacterial uh, lung infections. So that's the story that we told in that in that first paper. And we showed we showed that with real data. Right. Uh, and, and then and for the CDC audience data. I'm sorry. What was the last part there? We'll say it again. We, we showed that with the CDC's own data. Right, exactly. Things important, and and that including for the audience, maybe if you're tuning in late, that that compounds with what you were discussing around the lockdowns and the situation. Yeah. And I would add to that the masks and other things that were added. You, you the, the, there is a clear now. This doesn't. I'm not insinuating most, how, to what degree, but that's most, an absolute fact that they can yeah. lead to bacterial pneumonia. Just thought there, there, there. Yes, there are two factors here. One is the people who are going to die are highly vulnerable people. They're mentally disabled, they're obese, and they're in poverty, and they're institutionalized, and they're subjected to enormous life-changing circumstances that cause enormous stress. So these, and stress is known to, mechanistically at the molecular level, known to completely depress your immune system. So these are the people who are most likely to die. And, uh, but mechanistically, the way that most of them are going to die is the usual way that people of all ages can be killed uh, uh, who are living under those conditions. And that is bacterial pneumonia. It is a killer of everyone from infants to elderly people. 
And it does not, it does not, uh, if you are fragile in terms of your health or your immune system, you can be killed by bacterial pneumonia. And so this, we believe, mechanistically is what explains the, uh, the data that we have been reporting now for two years. And you can see a very, very, and this again goes back pre-COVID, and this it goes, and actually goes back to the paper I referenced in regard to health is more than influenza, where where this is where they begin conflating pneumonia with flu, and it's the same kind of thing we saw back then, where that there's even papers by the HHS that are calling this out, saying there was only two hundred something provable cases of flu, the other fifty something thousand were pneumonia that just get conflated with flu, and so then we see the same thing, and those on my audience will know that you can look on the CDC's own website and they use an acronym PIC, which is pneumonia, influenza, and COVID. So what do you think about that? Is that motion? Yeah, yeah for pneumonia? sure, for sure. I, I, I. I... I, you know, it's very difficult even for an experienced clinician to say with certainty that, you know, that it's always, you always, you almost always will have uh, co-infection. You'll, you'll have, they will say you, you can detect viruses, but several, when they actually specifically detect viruses in, in dying or dead people, uh, mostly dying people, they will typically find uh, uh, by cultures, you know, two, three, four, five different viruses that they can identify. Um, the same is the same story for bacteria, and it's all happening at the same time. So what's important here is not the, the pathogen. It's the fact that your immune system is depressed and you're, right. and you're going to be killed. And, and, and the lungs are one of the most uh, uh, fragile organs because it's in direct contact with the air and everything, and it's, it's high surface organ and so on. And so that's how you're going to die. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, n- the 1918 thing, right. you know, that, that, that incredible uh, time of dying of young people and poor people happened under very special circumstances and happened before the influenza virus was even proposed or, or discovered. You have to realize that. There was no such thing as flu uh, back then. Um, so... And then it, the, the lung tissues were reanalyzed by five different teams of researchers, all the lung tissues that they have in collections and everything. And everybody found that the people that they could see died of bacterial pneumonia, period. Even so this was, paper on, the, on this yes. laid that out. And of course, they didn't include the discussion of masks in there. That's how they debunk this topic by pretending that's being conflated. But you have to acknowledge that there's that's one of the biggest examples of mass being used on a massive scale in the United States. And I think my opinion is that that is very clearly what led to exacerbating the problem in conjunction with General Pershing knowingly ignoring what was happening and sending people out again. That's a whole other yeah, part of I'm, that. I'm, but. I'm not I haven't done the research. I'm not prepared to advance the mask theory regarding 1918 because it, it, it was 1918 was a killing field, you know, in mm-hmm. Russia as well, in, in very close years. And it was all related to war conditions and economic conditions, and just horrendous living conditions. Uh, and not everybody wore masks, but they all died, you know. Yeah. So just as a factor not, is all I'm saying that it I, added. Yeah, to yeah, it. yeah. I'm not I'm not prepared to go there, but I am prepared to say that I'm, I'm sure that masks can cause and it's known cause health problems. Right. There are right. a lot of scientific articles now that this is now a hot topic. There are, there are massive evidence now of all the health problems that masks can cause. And right. if you, yeah, I'm sure you've got one of these dying 
uh, very fragile individuals and you insist that they be double masked, you're not helping them. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is, this is where you can see the overlap as you painted there with all the early on, we got the studies that said people dying by and large, you know, I think it was like 2.5 to three different comorbidities. And so you could add the picture you painted there is very clear that the, the were essentially the people that were most vulnerable were focused on the most, which then ex- essentially caused them to be more at risk, more in danger with the factors you laid out. I think yeah. that's on, I mean the the, the main uh, you know when I talk about the mechanisms there 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 are layers of the mechanisms uh, the, the the highest layer um okay so there's the terrain there's the general health of the individual how susceptible mm-hmm. they are you know people who are obese in poverty in poverty doesn't mean just poor and not eating well it means that you're being subjected to uh, a dominance hierarchy stress on a regular basis, much more aggressively than other people and so on, right? So so um, there, that's what you might call the terrain. And then you've got, e- mechanistically, the very first most important layer is psychological stress. No mm-hmm. doubt about that. And a close second is isolation, social isolation. So you, you put those pressures on and then mechanistically under those circumstances, it's ultimately, in most cases, I would argue, it's the bacterial pneumonia that will kill you. So you're discussing oh, the influence of cortisol on the body, right? Essentially putting yourself into a fight or flight state, which causes your immune system to be suppressed. Is no, that what- it's, it's it's there's recent research on the direct uh, impact of stress on the immune system. And it's more mm-hmm. complex than the original uh, or the, the earlier work that was that was that showed what you're talking about. I would so, love to see that study, by the way. That's really interesting. Maybe yeah, I'll, send it to me. I'll include it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, so this brings I me. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that that study I'm talking about, we referenced it in our latest paper on the USA. Okay, so, outstanding. I mean, in yeah, source material. So that's there. Yeah. Now, so this brings me to the, the next part of this. So it, I think, I mean, I ask everybody to go through his research, look at it for yourself as always, come to your own conclusions about it. I personally find it to be impossible that this did not play a factor if it's not the entire thing. I think it's pretty clear, but this brings me to where we are now or maybe in the middle to now, right? Where we saw the introduction of something where you have other research discussing that also added to this problem. And this is a study, COVID period mass vaccination campaign and public health disaster in the United States. So let's get into that part of it. The, another, the, the next leg of this where you could argue, and I argue that the administration of these injections were caused problems. And you can tell me to what degree you feel that's happening. And then that, that in some ways, at the very least, is being called COVID-19 deaths or other problems. Do you, do you agree with that? And then let me know your thoughts on, on this in general. Yeah. Well, okay, the paper you have, you're showing up on the screen now, that's our latest v- massive paper, 168 pages, with all kinds of graphs and tables and everything, where we, where we really look at uh, what happened in the USA from the start up to virtually the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so we have the advantage when we did that study that uh, the, the vaccine campaign had essentially been accomplished. So half of the at the start of the COVID period is when the World Health Organization announced that there was a pandemic and all the, the all-cause deaths shot up at that point, uh, magically shot up at that point, just, just on the basis of the announcement. Uh, well, you know, and everything that followed. Mm-hmm. So then so then, then up to essentially the present, you've got about, I'm, I'm going to simplify, you've got about 100 weeks of, of, of COVID period. And the first 50 weeks, there are no vaccines. And the second 50 weeks, the vaccine campaign shoots up dramatically and you've got you're vaccinating you know hundreds of millions of doses in the united states and so on you're basically vaccinating the great majority of the population so you could 
So we argued that you should be able to see what the impact of the vaccine is, okay? Mm-hmm. And the very first conclusion is, um, and this is a hard conclusion, the vaccines did not lower all-cause mortality that was occurring in the COVID period. So right. there is no lives were saved by this huge, mega, mass vaccination campaign. That we some, can somebody can stick in there and argue that there's other factors that may justify that, but you cannot argue statistically that there was an improvement based on these injections, right? That's right. No, right. no, no lives were saved uh, right. uh, on, on this basis. I mean, they're saying that the vaccine becomes effective to protect you against serious illness within seven or 14 days. And uh, if you're protected against serious illness, then presumably you're somewhat protected against death because <laughs> you have to first get seriously ill and then die, right? And we uh, do not see any decrease in the United States. The high level of excess all-cause mortality is maintained throughout that 100 weeks that I'm talking about, irrespective of the fact that in 50 of those weeks, you had essentially vaccinated everyone or you'd put out the you know hundreds of millions of doses into people's arms it it had no visible effect in the all-cause mortality so that's the first point okay now the second thing that we tried to do is say well that's fine in terms of a bulk measure but let's look at the time dependence of all-cause mortality because there are peaks and troughs and things it's complex and it changes from state to state and it's very different by age group so let's look at that in some detail and compared to the time evolution of how many doses of the vaccine are administered to the people of that same age group, mm-hmm. let's try to see if there's a, a, a time-wise synchronicity that would link the vaccine to deaths, okay? So we took a, a careful look at that. And what we found is um, that we found strong examples of a coincidence between an increase in vaccination amount and a large extra peak in all-cause deaths. Now, this increase, we explained it in detail in the paper, this increase is, the, the increase in vaccination is not the original rise when they turned the campaign on, but it's later there was another rise when they implemented what they called equity programs, okay, mm. vaccine equity. Vaccine equity meant that they aggressively went into all the communities that had not yet been vaccinated enough and all the states and counties where this was the case. And they hired whoever and they went out and just injected everybody as much as they could. So you can actually see an increase in the in the uh, time wise uh, number of of vaccinations uh, administered. Um, And you see that in the poor states because it's in the poor states that where people uh, had not been vaccinated enough because they tend to be more isolated, more distant from each other, not not the same big population center and so on. Right. So for whatever reasons, uh, that's where you see this increase. And at the same time that there is this increase, there is a large peak that arises. And it's not a usual seasonal peak. It's not happening in the winter. It's happening in in the late summer prior to the winter uh, when this campaign was in effect. Which was pretty so, unprecedented, as I understand it. Oh, yeah, unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and, so, and so you can look at that peak and the vaccination and by age group in the poor states. It's very clear. It's okay. unambiguous. And so, you, so what we're saying is 
the vaccines, and we explain this in the paper at great length, the vaccines were a comorbidity. They are a toxic substance. There's no doubt about that. The VARS data shows it. There's a peak of mortality within five days following uh, injections. That's just unambiguous. It is a toxic substance. The lipids themselves that that are used for the capsule are known to be a toxic molecule to the body and so on. So, okay, it's a toxic substance. And, um, oh, I could talk about that for some time, but let's not go there right now. So, so, so what we're saying is the, uh, the vaccines were a comorbidity for exactly the same people that are mostly killed by the COVID measures. That is those same people who are particularly frail. So you're looking at poverty and disability, mental disability and uh, obesity and so on, when those situations combine in those particular individuals that are being isolated and mistreated, their lives are being transformed, they're stressed out, their immune systems are depressed, you're not giving them antibiotics, and you inject them in order to have equity, then that puts some individuals over the top. And that, we believe, gives rise to the extra uh, all-cause mortality peak that we see associated in those states where there are a lot of those individuals and where at the same time you've got this increase in vaccination. Right. So and it's, it's, it's important. It's a relatively subtle effect compared to the bulk all-cause mortality over the whole COVID period, you know, 1.27 million people. But it's it's very real. It cannot be an accident. There is this incredible synchronicity repeatedly by age group and state to state between that increase in vaccination and that increase in all-cause mortality. So that's one of our results. Okay. Yeah. Let me add real quick that I think it's, it's uh, first of all, include Dr. McCullough's uh, study with other people as well in regard to this exact point that, that adds to what you're saying on top of everything else that's already doing it, the innate immune suppression of these injections. And it only opens the door to other problems getting worse, beginning new problems on top of everything else we're discussing. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting so when you when you when you look at papers like that, they're mm-hmm. really getting into the molecular mechanisms mm-hmm. and, the, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about the immunology, the molecular mechanism and so on. Whereas what I'm saying is I'm just going to look at the, the mortality data. Right. Right. Well, I'm exactly. Not, I'm not even going to ask what the mechanism might be. Right. OK. And I'm telling you that there is no way that's an accident. Exactly. And I yeah. and I am just to add another correlative correlative point people to think about is I find it very telling that every category you just listed off are also the category somebody might decide to outline as the biggest drains of resources in regard to how these societies are functioning. And you can't ignore what we're seeing in the UK. Open actions about, you know, do not resuscitate orders for people with learning disabilities. There's a very weird, in my opinion, kind of eugenics overtone to all of this. That's just my statement. And whether you want to talk about that or not, I think it's very, very concerning to me that this is a focus. As you said, it's impossible to see as in some ways not being intentional. Well, personally, I would say that in effect, in effect, it may not be intentional, but in effect, yeah. that certainly seems to be the case. I mean, yeah. the, the way the elderly people were 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 treated, especially poor elderly people, and so on. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm, the, the, there has been completely disregard, complete disregard for uh, disabled people, mm-hmm. uh, uh, mentally disabled, especially, uh, and so on. So there, there is, there's no doubt that there is a negative bias towards these people in our society and that much less care is going to be, there's way less accountability if you, if you kill these people. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. 
So that well, that is that's just a structural reality. Um, I, if yeah. you wanted to talk more about the toxicity, I mean, f- quite frankly, I don't think we need to. I mean, my no. audience is well versed on this. I don't think it's even a debatable right. point anymore to argue these things aren't well, dangerous. I, I, if you'd like to talk I, about it, please. No, I'd ahead. like to stick with all cause mortality okay. and the correlation with the vaccination a little bit longer because there's another interesting point that I haven't made yet. Okay? Oh, please, please go ahead. And so, in the large paper that you show, the most recent one about the USA, mm-hmm. we found that something happened, but only in one state that was really dramatic and really surprising. And that was Michigan. So in Michigan, um, in Michigan, when the when the vaccination campaign was first turned on, so that's when you really get the strong burst of injections happening really quickly in time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, there was a huge spring peak in all cause mortality, and I mean massive. Okay. So not, no other state has a peak in the spring following the initiation of the vaccine campaign. But Michigan has a peak there, difficult to understand how or why, Mm -hmm. and it is synchronous with the massive increase in vaccination delivery happening at the same time, and by age group as well. So so we saw that and we thought, wow, that's really incredible. And here the vaccines appear to have been very deadly, um, but... And and deadly in in an amount comparable to the toxicity that we quantified using the virus data. Okay, just only one order of magnitude off, which is easy to understand if you consider the heterogeneity of the population and that some people are going to be killed more than others and so on. So anyway, we thought, wow, that's a big effect. Why is it only happening in one state? That's really strange. We we don't know the answer to that, mm-hmm. but we have this very real unmistakable phenomenon in Michigan. Well, since that time, we have been opening up the data for Canada again, because we wrote a a big paper on Canada all-cause mortality some maybe a year ago or something. So we we started looking at the Canadian data again, because now we've got the vaccination campaign rolling into Canada. And what we find is that that same spring peak that coincides with the massive initial upshoot of vaccination is occurring in several provinces in Canada. Interesting. At exactly the same time frame? Yeah, it's synchronous with the, with the, um, with the vaccinations, and therefore it's in the spring uh, of, of following the, 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 the uh, January, January 2021, so it's in that, in that spring. And so it's happening in, in Ontario and Alberta and so on. You can see this peak and it is, it is uh, affecting, you can see it more clearly in the age group, not the most elderly, but it's kind of the intermediate adult ages. So we're seeing that in Canada and we'll be reporting on that soon. That's the article that we're working on now. That's so that, that's, that's, that's frightening. It is. Did you say at the end there that it's, it is also diff- correlated by age? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you, there's a lot of really interesting research that I haven't personally come to my conclusions of whether I think this is exactly what's happening, but there's a lot of discussion around whether there are different lots that might be more potentially dangerous than others. And that might explain that, but the age would, I guess, kind of call that into question. Yeah. Um, we wrote a paper about uh, VARs based on the uh, an analysis of the VARs data, and we argue that the notion that there are toxic lots is is most probably incorrect, and there's mm-hmm. no reason to suppose that that's the case. 
we argued that the heterogeneity that's observed can all be explained in terms of age dependence of the mortality risk associated with this toxic injection. So um, we, we, and we explain that not, not a lot of people appreciate what we did. I mean, they don't really get it. They don't understand it or they haven't studied it enough because, you know, age has a big effect on mortality. Mm -hmm. Uh, The risk of mortality in general, whatever the cause is exponential with age. And the doubling time is about nine years. And that's a universal property of human beings. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you can go across cultures, across time in history you always have, except in cases where, you know, there's a war or there's a lot of accidents or, and so on. But basically, that's a property of the human body. So you, the, the risk of dying in the next time unit, like in the next year or so, doubles every nine years. So death is exponential with age. That's a fundamental property of biology. And you find this uh, uh, characteristic in other animal species as well, but the doubling time is different, obviously. Mm. So anyway, that's a general feature. The same sort of thing is happening with so-called COVID. You have this exponential rise that follows about the same way. And um, so so where was I going with this? The, the, what, what were we? Oh, yes, the VARS data. So what we, the other thing that's important is, so the risk of death due to being challenged with a toxic substance and so on will go, will rise exponentially with age, but also the heterogeneity of whether or not you'll die, the heterogeneity, meaning the width of distribution of that probability for a given age increases with age. Hmm. I don't know if you get that, but you see what I mean? Yeah. So, so if you're, if you're injecting older people, there's going to be much more variation in how toxic the substance is to them than if you're injecting younger people. So within the younger people group, the toxicity is going to be about the same for everyone. And as you go, and so what we showed is that this, this heterogeneity also increases exponentially with age. And when you take those two factors into account, um, it explains everything that is seen in the VARS uh, database. Uh, and and there is no need to say that there were toxic doses. Yeah, that makes sense. And what's an interesting addition to that is Swiss Policy Research put out a great study about uh, the correlation between, or rather not correlation, but the, the idea that the average uh, age of death in this country is low is essentially lower than the average death age of people dying from COVID. And, and yes. essentially you're no more risk than your average mortality in this context. And you know, there's so many of these points that make this an impossible yes. situation for what they're, what they're arguing. I, I'd like to, to bring this to the, uh, this one, the, yeah, this one here to, to finish this off in regard to where mm. we are now, evaluating the effects of lockdowns on all cause mortality, primarily because they're not only, are we at a point where, I mean, everything we've discussed today should be challenging everything that's happening right now, but at a point where not only have we seen that the lockdowns were catastrophic, but they're still go- planning on using them going forward for other pandemics, even for climate change lockdown discussions. And so g- give us an insight quick on, on this. Okay, so so the, the first author here is the uh, brilliant uh, Harvard professor, John Johnson, who is uh, trained as an astronomer, but he's a, a, a more physics-minded astronomer. He's actually looking at uh, discovering planets and so on. So he knows about f- physics a lot. And uh, we, we, we hit it off, and uh, he's become interested in, in, in the uh, epidemiology of this, of this uh, phenomenon. And so we've got this paper, and we're continuing to collaborate on these things. So um, 
This paper has since now been published by the Brownstone Institute. So they actually published it as as one of their regular uh, publications. And um, we showed that in the United States, there are uh, many states who did not have any lockdown impositions. And they are joined by a border with states that did. So you can make direct comparisons. And often these states are very comparable. And so we looked at these comparisons. And what we found was that uh, statistically, virtually systematically, uh, you had lower all-cause mortality if you did not lock down. Of course. Okay. And so the graphs that are shown in that paper are, are quite fascinating. And they also show, well, there, there's many things in there. And we also um, corrected for the intrinsic health inequities between states also. You know, it, it's not a big effect, but it's an effect that one can and should correct for. So we did everything properly. And we showed systematically uh, from a statistical point of view that the many states that did not lock down fared much better in terms of all-cause mortality than their neighbors that did lock down. And I think that perfectly ties in with the, the earlier study and the discussion. You can see how this all ties together. And it's just, a, again, intent is obviously a part of this, but removing it for the conversation's sake, you can clearly, in my opinion, I should say, but removing that from the conversation, you, it, you don't even need it. You can see that this could have been no. done in, go ahead. I, when, when we talk about intent, I like to separate two things. Mm-hmm. There was definitely an intent uh, to achieve geopolitical goals. And there is definitely, you know, I always describe the COVID measures as war measures that were imposed because we're in a war. And the war is a massive geopolitical economic war with China against China and Eurasia. Okay, and their development. They want to take the next decade or so and curtail and reverse the development of China and its trading partners, including Russia. And that that is their project. And the the military have announced it. And so in such a war, you're going to completely um, reconfigure the world economy. There are going to be huge consequences in terms of inflation, in terms of distribution of goods, everything. There's going to be massive consequences of this war that could become hotter and hotter because they like to throw in real war in there as well. And so therefore, they want to completely control uh, any cri- any domestic criticism of this project. And so they want war measures in place. They want to be able to control the population. And that's what war measures are. So you prevent travel, you, you censor communication, and you uh, impose obedience. And you want to demonstrate obedience. So that this is typical war measures. And, and you lock down and so on. You isolate and so on if, when needed and on command. And so you're training people to that. So I have argued that the COVID measures are war measures, basically, in a geopolitical battle. And I have argued that geopolitics did not disappear in 2020, that there is a continuity of strong geopolitical top-level forces that are quite apparent since before the Second World War, and that there's a continuum. And I've written about it. I've studied it. Uh, I wrote a big paper on geopolitics that came out in 2019, I believe it was, that explained a lot of this and how it relates to global currency and so on, and 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 the wars and the armament industry and so on. So you can you have to I think you have to look at COVID in light of geopolitics, 
and geopolitics is real. And the and we don't like to say this word, but there is an empire, and that empire is real. Okay, and I I absolutely do not buy the idea that Russia and China are not sovereign and are basically part of the same global system. There are many connections, there are many collaborations, but they are sovereign states, and they are they are in economic. Uh, necessarily because the states wants it that way, they, they're, 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 they're considered opponents. So the United States does not want co-development. They want supremacy, and they want to crush their adversaries that are coming up. And so we've got an, a geoeconomic war on our hands, and these are war measures. That's how I understand COVID. Okay, and I've talked about this and written about it and so on. Okay. Just, if I could add a couple points to that, just for and my audience is well aware of my perspectives on this. And I tend to see it more as a, as a, as a, a coordinated effort today, kind of in a great reset direction, but I definitely agree with what you're saying. And especially in a cr- historic sense, I just not sure if I haven't, I feel like I've seen things shift in a different way going forward, but I guess time will tell in general, but I agree with you. And I think that you can't remove the geopolitics from any of this stuff from any of these countries, because that's always playing a factor. And it speaks to the kind of the never let a good crisis go to waste point in the context of whether or not this could have just been grabbed onto to use for multiple reasons. And I think your research here makes that very clear in the context of the individual and how this was abused in the situation. And I tend to add the point that I think that it might have been more preplanned than we think. But I think the evidence. But, but, but the, coming back to the point of uh, intent. Mm-hmm. So, there, in my mind, there is intent to impose these war measures. There is intent mm-hmm. to surveil more. There is intent to control uh, individual bank accounts more. There's an there's an intent to be able to order lockdowns whenever they want. There's that. There's no doubt in my mind. There's intent to do all of that. But the other ca- uh, category of intent is: is there intent to kill? Mm. And that's there. I you know that's where I draw the line. I I think that. They can be reckless. They can know that they will be killing people and not care. But I do not believe that there's an intent to call or to kill or to, uh, you know, have some kind of a genocide or reduce the population. Now, having said that, I also agree with the, the notion that the elite and the elite leaders and people who control the world um, do not like a large population. Because a large population is, is a danger, is a threat to them. Because when you have a large population, you have a lot more interactions, a lot more occasions for people to meet and discuss and organize and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's harder to control. If you've got a growing and large population, it's much harder to, to know w- w- what the dangers are out there against the elite. So in that sense, they don't like growth. Basically, what it comes down to is they don't like growth. They don't want economic growth and development in the rest of the world. They definitely don't want it in Latin America and Africa. Otherwise, there would have been decades of it. Okay, mm-hmm. and so it would have been very easy to have growth. They have allowed controlled growth of their so-called allies in Europe and Japan. You know, under the Bretton Woods Agreement and and following the Second World War, they've allowed it. But then, when it becomes threatening, they 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 pull back on it. So they they dissociate themselves from the Bretton Woods agreement unilaterally and that really harms and causes what they call globalization which just means that the uh, u.s centered uh finance and and corporations take more of the world take more control of it that's what globalization really means and so they pull back whenever they want and right now they're destroying europe 
they're destroying Europe by uh, imposing these huge sanctions against uh, the biggest trading partner with Europe, which is Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they want to destroy Europe, I believe, because they would prefer to destroy Europe rather than allow it to integrate into Eurasia and to continue that development. Okay. They really don't want that. So they're willing to sacrifice their allies without any problem. Um, I would just say real quickly that I think there's definitely parts of, you know, that like there's always vying agendas within and even in a country, right? In different political systems. So I agree. There's definitely an element of that. I just tend to see the leading element. And this is my opinion, being more trying to trying to create this global entity in the World Economic Forum sense, the UN sense, the Great Reset sense. And there's a lot of evidence. They're not. Those are not opposite views. Um, If they manage to crush China and Russia and the sovereign economies, if you like, if they manage to crush them, then those economies will be forced to be integrated into what they're building. And mm-hmm. what they're building is this reset and their their own controlled and owned e-currency, right? I see, that's I see. So the difference being maybe a US-centric control of this versus a UN World Economic Forum-centric control over Oh it. yeah, in my right. mind, there's no, there's no doubt about that in my okay. mind, you know. Uh, that's a fair uh, point, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we you have to understand the very wealthy billionaire class as existing only because the US allows it. Mm. And they have to serve US interests. And you have to understand pharma and the big corporations in the same way. If the US decides that strategically or militarily they are no longer useful or they are a threat, they will disappear. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt about that in my mind. And there's historical examples of that. So you have to understand a, a lot of things that we think of as, oh, the corporations, oh, the wealthy elite and so on, as being uh, dependent on serving U.S. interests. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of questions I hope people are asking themselves right now. Because, you know, right now we're theorizing in general. And I think what yeah. we can see is that the, the direction seems to be clear. And I think people need to start asking themselves whether this is what they believe they're voting for, what they want to see happen in their future. And I really think, again, to, to central to kind of switch back into the focal point of today, which was the the concern about what's really going on today. And again, I think that your research here, it just cannot be disconnected from this discussion. And that's, I really hope other people out there, even if they have different opinions about how or why or intent, need to start involving this in the conversation because we have to see that in a large way, this was cut from whole cloth and whether people realize that or not, that it was, you know, again, I go back to the PIC conversation, you know, any, and even again, outside of the all cars mortality point, to get further into it, you can see how even the PCR test was abused in ways that could make it look like certain things. There's so many ways that people will dive through. And I hope there's a lot more research, by the way, on his, uh, I'm going to bring this up one last time before we end here that I hope people will go through. Each one of these are studies that Denny Rand court, I'll say court, so I don't say it the yeah. wrong way, <laughs> is involved in that. I hope you will take a take time to read. Yeah, and so I, I don't know if you have a live link there, but if you click research, Mm-hmm. Under research, there's geopolitics. Okay. And the top, top article there is the geoeconomics and um, geopolitics drive, et cetera. That's, that's a very large and very thorough study okay. uh, of the geopolitical kind of um, background of all of this that I believe is the top layer of control.
Perfect. I'll make sure I include that for people to get more of an in-depth, you know, understanding of where you're coming from on this. And I, I really hope people will take the time to dive through this because, you know, in a, on a one and a half hour interview, you can just really go over the, the surface of this and I, you, your research deserves to be given the time. So thank you for, uh, for joining me today again and going over this. The last thing I guess I want to ask you for people that are, this might be new to, right? Any of this stuff, they might just be hearing this for the first time. There's a lot of people out there, friends, family, neighbors, that people are trying to say, take a look at this, open your mind to this. Do you, and it might be a difficult question, but do you think there's one point that people should start with, one discussion point, one data point to, to, to bring to people first, to help open their minds to where, what's really going on? Wow, that's difficult. Or maybe just a topic uh, yeah, of discussion. Yeah, you know, we're talking about individual human psychology mm-hmm. and individual presence in their community and environment it's a very difficult question um how do you in other words maybe maybe another way to ask the question is how do you how do you best jolt someone into becoming uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in in their beliefs you know how do you best do that and i think i think that generally the answer is by a personal contact Mm -hmm. you know by 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 explaining what you believe and why you believe it by opening a communication so that you can really get out the person personally on the people that are closest to you. And, um, and in doing that, you often discover that there are parts in your own logic that are incomplete or that are, you know, maybe tenuous and you have to go back and learn more yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the process. Um, But um, people are going to, whatever it is, trust, you know, what's I think the people that are going to help to turn this around or at least resist it are the people who feel very strongly, for example, that they don't want to be injected. Yeah. And they're just not going to allow that. And they're not going to allow their children to be injected. And they're not going to, you know, and the more people feel strongly about things like you're not going to force me to wear a mask, you know, it, it's ridiculous and so on. The more people who feel that way and who really uphold that, um, that will create a critical mass and that can really help to turn it around. So we have to feel strongly. I, I think we have to, it's great that many Canadians are learning to really detest our prime minister. Mm-hmm. And that, that visceral sentiment is based in something real that they feel that they know must be true. And it is true. He is, that man is serving other interests Absolutely. And, the, and the other interests, uh, Canada has largely lost its sovereignty to the United States and is, is, is even willing to sacrifice its own economy and everything, you know? So it, it, it does not have economic sovereignty and it is behaving. uh, The, the, the leaders are selling off Canada and to heck with Canadians, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good thing for people to look into. Hashtag Trudeau must go right now. There's a lot of conversation, even going so far as to call anybody using that a bot online, even though there's verifiable stories of people suffering. I mean, this is, it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because that's a story people need to look into. But yeah, th- thank you for that. And I, and I know it's a super broad question, but I think people, you know, your perspectives are opening minds. And I would argue personally, the best one to start off would, would, would be to take this study itself and share this with people. The one that we started off with, said way at the bottom, to start off to, to start off with this discussion in regard to the all-cause mortality point, and just showing people. Oh, of course, that's the wrong one. This one here. You need to go there into the go. COVID. Oh yeah. Oh, 
and and to show people that you know that there's there's a statistical using the data you can show at the very least that there's an anomaly here and that's and that's to your point make them uncomfortable make, make them realize there's not something something's not connecting here and and use those personal relationships as i say yeah. plant the seed and bring it you back you know ryan you've i think you've identified a really good starting point because that in that article we really spell things out we talk right. about the mechanism of health we talk about what the data means what how what how what methods we're going to use? We we really did a good job of spelling it out and showing all the data and looking for correlations and so on. Yeah, but, and and then we went much further with the next one as well. But 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 we were already relying on that knowledge, right? So right. maybe that's the better one to start with. Yeah. I, yeah, just to, I mean, I personally find it impossible to read that and walk away because you can confirm the data in the material you show that yeah. you they walk away thinking that there's at least not something wrong here. And that's just a warp. I want people to open their minds to that there is something amiss. And it's personally, I find it being more nefarious than anything else. But as long as they can question what's going on, question everything, as always, I think that's a good place to start. So thank you for being here, Danny. And I always enjoy our conversations, man. I hope we can do this again in the near future. Um, anything else you want to leave us with today? Upcoming research? Social media. No, it's great. I, I appreciate your venue and I want to thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to have this discussion. And it was a lively discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Ryan. Well, thank you, Denny. Always a pleasure. And as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. Faith in quick tests leads to epidemic that wasn't in January 22nd, 2007. Nearly everyone involved thought the medical center had had a whooping cough outbreak. Nearly 1,000 healthcare workers in, in New Hampshire were given a test. Results were in. 142 people, including the doctor herself, were told that they appeared to have whooping cough. Thousands were given antibiotics, a vaccine for protection. Hospital beds were taken out of commission, including some of the intensive care. Sound familiar? The whole thing was a false alarm. Not a single case of whooping cough was confirmed with the definitive test. They placed too much faith in a quick, highly sensitive molecular test that led them astray. At Dartmouth, the decision was to, was to use a test PCR, even with the acronym, because it was so early, for polymerase chain reaction. And it led to the epidemic that wasn't.